0: I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. This is an Ask Me Anything with our senior scholar, Richard Salzman. Uh, We wanna encourage uh, you to ask questions. I've got my own questions. We encourage you to share the room. Uh, Richard, we appreciate you doing this as you do so often. Um, You know, you're an economist. Uh, People are interested in your take on the economy Goldman cut the recession risk to 15%. I mean, they're seeing the same inverted yield curve. Biden is trying to run on the economy. Uh, Is it possible the yield curve isn't taking everything into account this time?
1: Uh, No, it's not. Uh, One of the great things about the yield curve is it's a a kind of summary measure of a whole bunch of things. So uh, you always want that. Just as in epistemology, you want uh, integration. You want... You want concepts that condense and essentialize the most important features. I have found over the years that 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 is exactly what uh, the yield curve does. Now, for those who don't know, this is a bit technical in economics, but the yield curve, yield just means interest rates. And the idea of a curve is if you plot, and I can't do this physically, obviously, but in your mind, if you plot on a two-dimensional axis, the vertical being interest rates, and the horizontal being the term, you know, from overnight to three months to 10 years to 30 years. Everyone's familiar with the 30 year mortgage. Normally, that is upward sloping, which is another way of saying normally short term interest rates are below intermediate term interest rates. By term, I mean maturity. And then equally, intermediate rates are below long term rates, meaning the longer the term of lending is. Uh, the higher the interest rate will be. Now, I think you can imagine why that might be the case under normal circumstances. The lender is less certain the longer the time frame is, what inflation will be, what your credit history will be. So it's okay, they're gonna, they're gonna charge a higher interest rate for longer term, all else equal. Well, inverted means that curve is, well, upside down, meaning short-term interest rates are very much above long-term interest rates. And for various reasons, first of all, one, that's rare. Two, it actually makes financial intermediation uh, unprofitable. Uh, Another technical term, but financial intermediation means financial institutions borrow money, they basically take your deposits, they pay you an interest rate, they turn around and lend it. Now imagine if the rate they paid you was higher than the rate they earned. That's what an inverted yield curve is. They're paying a higher short-term deposit rate than they are receiving in longer-term lending. It's a losing proposition. They tend not to do it. So the credit system seizes up. Now, why do we get inverted yield curves? The Federal Reserve mostly controls short-term interest rates, not long-term interest rates. And so they can deliberately, and they often do, deliberately raise short-term interest rates so as to invert uh, the yield curve and it might surprise you Scott and others that they also know the very thing I'm citing they know by now uh, maybe they maybe they didn't quite know this 20 years ago but the evidence is so overwhelming they now know that an inverted yield curve tends to lead to recession so now you have to ask why would they deliberately adopt a policy which makes credit intermediation unprofitable and tends to lead to recession, not just, by the way, not just tends to, the last eight recessions in the United States, going back to 68, that's a long time ago, that's almost 60 years ago. Every single one of those recessions was preceded by an inverted yield curve, by the Federal Reserve, not just raising interest rates, because occasionally they do that, but importantly, raising them above long-term interest rates. So it has a perfect forecasting record And you mentioned Goldman. Uh, I've noticed I've been doing this about 22 years now, so I've used the curve to forecast three recessions. Now I'm forecasting one for 2024 because the curve has been inverted since October 2022. They always will cite something saying it's different this time. You know, they'll say the curve is inverted. Yes, uh, it's had a perfect forecasting record. I I chalk this up to um, epistemological myopia. Uh, an inability to think in principle uh, a, a, such a focus on concrete bound stuff that they're you know they're they're in the weeds as we call it today they're in the weeds unable to um, see the broader principle involved but um, I'll, I'll leave it at that it's a technical it's a hard thing to explain technically but that's where we are and so someone like goldman saying well we're reducing our forecast of recession in 2024 i've been increasing my uh, call on recession in 2024, because not only is the yield curve still inverted, it's very deeply inverted, meaning the short-term interest rate remains much above uh, the 10-year bond yield. And the, le- the recent Fed meeting, I think very importantly, they all came out and said, uh, the Fed, a formal announcement said, we think inflation will remain so elevated that we are going to keep interest rates at the short end elevated And I looked today and most of the Fed officials, because they were on record being asked, what's your prediction of what rates will be? These are Fed officials being asked. All of them said that all through 2024, they expect to keep interest rates at the short rate above the bond yield. So I haven't seen this in my entire career that the curve could be inverted for more than a year. The longer it's inverted and the deeper it's inverted, the longer and deeper is the subsequent recession. So I'm now talking about the recession, not just of 2024. I'm talking now about this recession of 2024 slash 2025. The last time we had a multi-year recession like that sequentially was 74, 75. You'd have to be pretty old to remember it, but it was horrific.
0: I guess for me, it's part of the same paradigm that Europe shouldn't have been able to have gotten away with negative interest rates for as long as they did. Well, you know, that's part of it. And what, what we mean, for those
1: who don't know, what we mean by negative interest rates is um, if you take what's called the nominal interest rate, just any interest rate you'd see out, uh, published in uh, and seeing in markets, say, you know, say, the, say the mortgage rate is five but what if the inflation rate is 6 what scott's talking about is economists will subtract one from the other and say well the interest rate's not really 5 it's minus 1 why cuz you're paying 5% but in cheaper money in in an inflated money and the lender you know is going to be screwed at the end of the period that he's being paid back in cheaper dollars so and, and so that's very perverted, right? Because a free market would not have negative interest rates. A free market would always would have positive interest rates in the sense of, what do interest rates do? They equilibrate savings and investment. Uh, they're one of the most important prices in the economy. And they're li- the least understood price, I might say. I mean, if I said to you, what's the price of bananas? Or even what's the price of, uh, I don't know, smartphones? People kind of know that, and they know the law of supply and demand. But if I said to them, "What is an interest rate? What is that the price? What is that the price of? And how can it get distorted by government intervention?" They most people would just draw a blank. Um, but but Scott, you're on to something. The first point is, if I said there's a negative price for a smartphone, then people would scratch their head and say, "What do you mean the smartphone makers are giving it away?" right because the price would be they get some value (laughs) for their smartphone but a negative price would mean what they're paying you to take it they're engaged in philanthropy everyone knows that in the consumer products market something would be effed up and it's very much true in the interest rate market it's something central banks do my theme over the years has been increasingly that the reason central banks are doing this perverted as it sounds uh, someone should Mute. I think, Scott, someone should mute where they are. They're getting traffic in the background. It might be, might be David. David. Um, the um, Everyone thinks the Federal Reserve is there to preserve the value of money and to secure the safety of the banking system. It's a very backward, old, and naive view. I don't think it was ever actually really true, but it's definitely not true now. You have to think of the Federal Reserve as the government's favored pet bank it's there to help the government fund itself and in a world where the government will not choose to fund itself by taxes namely it doesn't dare it doesn't dare you can see why electorally it doesn't dare tax people to the full extent of the spending because there'd be tax revolts or there'd be you know people fleeing uh capital flight would be fleeing atlas would be shrugging so what they do instead is something very surreptitious They spend way in excess of what they tax. The difference is they have to borrow. They just can't borrow unlimitedly. They turn to the central bank and they basically ask the central bank to print money for them. They give them bonds. The central bank turns around and gives them money and off to the races. That's what central banking is now. That is what the Federal Reserve is doing now but the raising of interest rates is simply their panicky reaction to the idea they already, inc- they already caused inflation. They already caused inflation by printing money during the COVID shutdowns. And now in retrospect, they're looking back and saying, oh my gosh, well, we, we have inflation of nine, 10%. And they think the only way to stop it is to wreck the economy. They think that inflation is caused not by them creating too much money, but by the economy growing too fast, and so they're trying to slow. Slow the economy if necessary, cause a recession.
0: Thank you, uh, David. Did you want to uh, ask a question, Richard?
1: Say,
2: again. Yeah. Uh, I, I I did. Thanks, Richard. I always love listening to you explain economics because oh, thank, you. Uh, thank, you. thank you, David. As a as non economist, uh, so many things uh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but well, I, my my question is about um, what do you say about interest rates the price what interest is a price of um, I always thought that um interest is what people charge for taking the risk of investing their money in some in, in a loan uh, and the risk yeah. is inherent because it's uh you know all kinds of things can happen and that would result in you not getting paid back. So is that wrong? Is it um, true but not essential? Uh, It doesn't, or in any case, how how does that relate to what you said? Um,
1: That's not wrong at all, David. That's definitely part of it. So you said risk, Um, the way way economists who understand this would talk about it is they would say, okay, here's one risk one risk is the borrower might default well yeah okay so you can analyze ways in which to assess the risk that they might default have they defaulted in the past what's their credit rating have they ever borrowed before you know all those kind of things that bankers do to judge whether someone uh, should get money or not so that so you're absolutely right david that's one risk but here's another one another one would be i lend to someone they're perfectly fine as a credit risk. I think they will. Re- lend, I think they will re- repay me. But a risk I have to think about, which comes from the government, is what if the value of money goes down? That's inflation. What if the value? And that's a risk. You have to judge whether it'll happen or not. I have to judge independently of the of the borrower. Is the government going to debase money? So the so the you know three four five years down the road, when I get the money back, it's worth less. I don't th- I'm not saying it's worthless. I'm saying it's worth less. So, so lenders will raise interest rates if they expect inflation to occur. Um, so that's another risk. I, I mean, I could mention geopolitical risk and other things, but you're absolutely right, David. You're a very good economist, a lot better than most of them. Risk, uncertainty, definitely get incorporated into interest rates. The the error that you did not make, which most do make, and I always quiz students on this, and they always make this mistake, I'll say to them, an interest rate, what's that the price of? And they'll, and they'll always say, money. It's not really true. The value or the price of money is its purchasing power, how much it buys. And there's a supply-demand curve you can draw if you get into the techniques of this. And that's different than an interest rate. An interest rate is the supply and demand of savings. And it definitely does involve money, right? Because you're saving money and then you're lending or borrowing money. But it's a derivative concept, still an important one. But many, many people, David, uh, you didn't do this. Many, many people will say uh, an interest rate is the price of money. Uh, By the way, Keynes believed that. In, and he uh, codified the textbooks through Samuelson for years. Here's the idea. Imagine this. If it's true that interest rates are the, val- the price of money, how do you lower interest rates? Uh, create more money, <laughs> Incre- increase the supply of money. It'd be like saying, how do you reduce the uh, price of shoes? Make more shoes. So the Keynesians ha- adopt this fallacy. Their view is the way to lower interest rates is to print money. Well, you look at the long history of this, and even over the world today, the countries that most inflate, the countries that most uh, produce excess money have sky-high interest rates. Why? Because those bankers are not idiots. Those bankers are not stupid. They know they're going to be repaid in money of lesser value, of lesser purchasing power. So to offset that, to compensate themselves, they'll raise interest rates.
2: Oh, thanks, Richard. Uh, I appreciate that. And um, I see that maybe, maybe what I can take away is that uh, there is a risk uh, to a uh, lender that a borrower won't repay. That's only one of many risks, including um, what might be a bigger risk of government uh, money manipulation. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Great. Thanks. Great. Uh, Let's go to Connie. Connie, thanks for joining.
3: Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I was able to to pop in this time. And hello, Dr. Salzman and Jag and David. It's good to and see Con- you.
1: And Connie, I have to say I'm so impressed with your capacity to unmute right away. Most people can't do that. But you're very guys notice how quick you are with unmuting. Very good.
3: <laughs> well, thanks so much. <laughs> Quick, quick hands a warm yeah quick um, hands
1: quick thumbs yes yeah
3: there we go um i had a, a question i'd been kind of watching how some things have been unfolding and i've watched just the um further dipping of the yen and
4: yes.
3: apparently yeah. it was decided today to keep the interest rates exactly the same and uh from the report I read, it said. Um, I apologize. <laughs> a motorcycle of all things. No, um, that's um, okay. I have a
1: barking. I have a barking dog, so we're competing here, Connie.
3: But um, it's basically they are going to keep the interest rates un- unchanged. Yeah. And keep supporting the economy. They say until yeah. inflation sustainably hits its two percent target. Yes. Yeah. Do you look for others to follow suit, and how much further down can the yen go? That's <laughs> well,
1: funny. It, well, the, first, the first part of your question, my answer would be no. I do not expect other central banks to keep interest rates at near zero, uh, which is what um, the Bank of Japan has been doing almost for three decades No, most of the central banks today are facing not low inflation like Japan is, but high inflation. So all of them in a knee-jerk way um, tend to respond to that by raising interest rates. It's a totally bogus policy, by the way. I just don't uh, want to discuss this in a way that makes it um, something I'm endorsing. I'm just explaining. I'm just describing it more than anything. You do not fight inflation by raising interest rates. Higher interest rates are the effect of inflation, not the means of fighting it. I don't have to tell you that connie i'm not I'm not preaching to you more than anything but but what what's weird about Japan is for almost three decades now they have kept interest rates at almost zero, and their theory has been inflation's not high enough now, in my uh, political economy philosophy, there should be no inflation. There should be no deflation or inflation. There just should be price stability. But also that and that should not be delivered by central planning. It's wonderfully historically been delivered by a gold standard. And no one's on the gold standard anymore. I understand that. But uh, chi- uh, Japan's unique tragedy is that they have spent the last three or four Uh, three decades, I guess it's three now, Um, printing money, borrowing money. The debt to GDP ratio over there is something like 270% now. They are completely indebted and the economy has gone nowhere. I, I truly mean nowhere for three decades. Their production levels are no higher than they were in 1993. That is shocking especially when you go back and old older older people in the room will remember not China but Japan was seen as the powerhouse economically in the 80s and that they were going to overwhelm the United States yes except then then after that they started adopting Keynesian policies which have totally run them into the ditch so um, it's a it's a it's a sad thing they do have low inflation that's okay but the problem um, Connie is that Because of that, they think the problem is the inflation rates too low. Where in fact, the problem is the production rate is too low. They're they're so focused on prices that they don't care about production anymore, which is very odd because from the end of the war in 1945 until, I don't know, I would say something like 1990, 45 years, Japan's whole uh, success was based on booming production. And um, they didn't have inflation. They just boomed production. They were very good about it. And sadly, they adopted Keynesian policies after that. So we can talk about exchange rates. I think that's a bit technical for this room. But yes, as long as they keep doing that, the yen will decline. You can't just keep printing your currency and not expect it to decline in foreign exchange. Um, So yes, that's going to happen in Japan still.
3: Thank you for that.
1: I have
3: another question, but I know there are others in the audience. So come on back to me later if there's still time.
1: Would love to. Thanks, Connie. You always ask great questions.
0: We will, great. I do want to switch gears. There's an Instagram question asking, you know, uh, for 2024, who's going to get the uh, nominations in each party. I mean, we've got the, the next GOP debate coming up Wednesday. You're doing a debate analysis with our student programs manager, Abby Berenger, on Thursday. Uh, what are you hoping to see? Any early favorites? Oh, that's
1: a really good question. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's one of the first times TAS has done this. Um, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I do watch the debates uh, closely from both parties, by the way, just aren't going to be any Democrat ones this time. But um, I watched the first debate. The next one's at the Reagan Library. And uh, I think there'll be a few, uh, a bit fewer people on stage than before. I'm very curious. I've always been a Republican. I'm a true blue Republican. I do not like that wing of the objectivist movement that says, go with the Democrats and to hell with Trump and vote for Biden. I mean, it's hard to believe, but that is actually happening uh, elsewhere in the movement. I'm not going to name names, but uh, what I've committed to do next week is uh, listen very closely, as I normally do, take notes about what the Republicans on stage are saying, I'm always looking for some Republican to do the following. One, not just be anti-Democrats, not just be anti quote unquote liberals or anti-media. They need to have a positive message, a positive argument, and a future oriented argument about where the country is going. And of course, this audience won't be surprised for me to say I want it to go in the direction of liberty. I want it to go in the direction of rights. I want it to go in the direction of constitutional government. I want it to go in the direction of entrepreneurial capitalism, heroism. Now, if you you use that standard and then assess all the candidates, uh, and Trump will not be on stage, unfortunately. But I I think uh, from what I saw in the first debate, the only candidates that even come close to that are uh, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and um, now I'm going to forget her name, and uh, uh, Haley, the Nikki Haley, yes, the South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley. If you look her up, I know the conservatives don't think she's the real McCoy, but if you just if you just Google Nikki Haley and capitalism, you would be surprised how overtly she defends uh, capitalism. She's really very good. At that, and, and to me, any Republican or right winger who even uses the word, you know, the word is very controversial. It's very controversial even among libertarians and conservatives. Many of them will say, don't use that word. Uh, don't use that word because it suggests something uh, Ayn Rand might say. Nikki Haley uses the word uh, unabashedly. Doesn't mean she's a laissez fairest. My favorite is DeSantis. He's a, All of them are a bit too religious for me. Uh, but but setting that aside, I prefer DeSantis. Now, if someone's asking me for a prediction, I mean, uh, my thinking is there's no way that DeSantis and any of them can beat Trump in the primaries. On the other hand, I think people are underestimating how vicious and nasty the um, weaponization of the Justice Department and these other AGs are against Trump. I I think he's being unfairly, really viciously mistreated. Uh, Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a big Trump fan, but I'm a big fan of the Constitution, and I'm a big fan of free speech, and I'm a big fan of anyone who says, I'm going to question, and I think there's reason to question, whether there was fraud in an election, because there is fraud in American elections. The only question is what degree of fraud exists, and whether they change the actual outcome, but I believe what's happening is they're trying to criminalize as fraud grows. They're trying to criminalize anybody who questions the degree of fraud in these elections. So I think it's possible, and you know they're trying to do this, that they will not let Trump be on the ballot, that he'll either be in jail or he'll be so smeared by all these, what is it up to now, five cases against him. And so um, people who say to me, like, why do you even care about the horse race between DeSantis and, and Nikki Haley and others? Well, it, it's, inch Robert Swamy, it's because it's quite likely that Trump won't be there. So one of those three uh, will be there. So we have to listen to their arguments. And, and even if Trump wins the primary and goes into the election, I think it's very important. I, I learned this about the Reagan years. Uh, Reagan, if you know, ran against uh, Ford in 1976, did not win, but learned a lot. Uh, Ronald Reagan learned a lot by that race. And of course he had been governor of California for a couple of uh, uh, terms. And it paved the way for 1980. And then 1984, two landslides. So I like the fact that DeSantis is trying this. Whether he'll, whether he'll succeed or not this round doesn't really matter. He's going to learn a lot. He's going to figure out who will fund him or not. He's going to figure out whether the arguments work or not. Trump is not going to be around forever. He might not even be around in 2024. I, I believe the future of the Republican party is DeSantis. DeSantis and the, the argument of California, Florida is free, California is not. Gavin Newsom is the next new shiny thing coming from that side. It's going to be DeSantis, Newsom uh, in our lifetime over the next eight years, I believe. And DeSantis has a good story. Newsom has a terrible story, but the media loves him. So um, my prediction, if... Trump is not in jail. He will win the nomination and then lose to Biden again. Very, very tragic. And if you go the route of Biden can't possibly make it, therefore he'll be replaced by someone like Manchin or Newsom or um, who's that vice president? I can't even think
0: of her. Kamala Harris. Oh,
1: that non-entity. If it's Kamala Harris, then Trump will beat her. If it's Newsom, Trump will lose to Newsom. We're in a very precarious situation because the Republican Party, much as I prefer them so, so much more to the Democrat Party, they're much closer to capitalism than the Democrat Party. They're really very not good at defending and positively extolling capitalism. They're shy about it. They're very shy about it. And they're on the defensive. They needn't be. But they are. I think our job as right wingers, but more than that, philosophic right wingers—that's how I think of objectivists—should really be trying our best to bolster, improve um, the arguments of the Republican, the arguments and strategies uh, of the Republican Party. By the way, notice recently that Trump has gotten uh, pushback and criticism from conservatives because he has said very interestingly, "You guys are losing because of Roe v. Wade." I think that's very interesting because when he was in New York all those years, and I was in New York all those years, I knew exactly what Donald Trump was. He was not a Republican. He was a pro-choice, kind of middle-of-the-road Democrat when he was in New York City. And that doesn't mean a, that doesn't mean he was a bad guy. It just means that Donald Trump is much more pro-choice, more libertarian uh, than people think. Um, he's not principled enough so that when he was trying to get the Republican nomination in 2016, he sidled up to the religious right and came out against um, uh, abortion rights. And, and actually, I remember him specifically asked, because um, the left knows how to do this, they pressed him and said, well, would you actually imprison doctors, you know, for doing abortions and he said yes and i thought that is the most disgusting thing i've ever heard <laughs> my god that's that's how much trump was trying to get that vote and he did get the vote uh he got the evangelical vote and the, and the left was like why did donald trump get the oh, oh my god we can't he's so immoral he's mistreats women blah 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 blah, blah. and then and yet the evangelicals loved him uh because he said stuff like that so that's too long an answer but What do you think? Come back at me.
0: Uh, I mean, you could also uh, argue that he uh, appointed justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. I know. (laughs) I thought of that today. I thought he's giving
1: these talks saying, uh, well, you guys really need to be careful on the Republican side to not be. He's not really saying that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was wrong. Notice what the way he put it was some of you state. Some of you guys like in the southern states, you know, are restricting the right to like, you know, three weeks of, uh, or six weeks or seven weeks or and it's hurting us. But you're right. Absolutely right, Scott. You can come back and say the only reason Roe v. Wade was overturned is because he nominated, do I have it right now, Kavanaugh, uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Okay. Yes. It's, yes. Yes. Did he not know that they would possibly overturn it? Amazing. He, he probably did.
0: Yeah, I just don't know how much of the pro-choice vote he's going to be able to pick up. Uh, he's just sort of, he's no, got so I much know. dominance, he's already running to the center.
1: Right, and and you know the Roe v. Wade, I'm on the Roe v. Wade side, I'm against Dobbs, and uh, the Roe v. Wade people will say exactly what you said, Blather all you want about the Republic coming to anti-women's choice, but you, Mr. President, was the one who gave us these three uh, that tipped the court. You're absolutely right. It's going to be impossible for him to escape that. Uh, I think it's going to be hard for him to escape that. I, by the way, the, I think for the those in listening, I think one of the most interesting debates within the Republican Party and within um, the right, is when I say things like, and as I often do on Facebook and elsewhere, if the Republican Party could bring itself to defend a woman's right to choice and take a more objectivist libertarian position, which is, you know, on the bumper sticker, the argument was, we are pro-choice on everything. Not just... Not just what to do with our bodies, but what to do with our businesses, and what to do with our lives. We want liberty, and um, that the Republicans would never lose another election. But many uh, people will push back on that and say to me, "That's wrong, Richard." Because if they took that position, they would also lose the religious right. Now, I think that's possible, but when I, but I don't believe it's ever since I saw the evangelicals vote for Trump. I've thought to myself that the religious right is much less principled than people think. They are much more willing to vote for people who are sketchy on these issues um, because everyone knows that if you dig into his background, Donald Trump was pro-choice. So the evangelicals know this, they have a more um, pragmatic, and that's not a good thing, a unprincipled view of backing the horse that might win the race. So I think it's a myth, although conservatives push it. I think it's a myth that if the Republican Party became pro-choice, they would cannibal, They would gain some votes but cannibalize uh, the base, quote-unquote, the base. I don't think that's true. And, uh, but Nancy Mace, if you look up Nancy Mace, M-A-C-E, and others, there's a small contingent within the Republican Party. Nancy Mace is the leader of them who's been advocating for Republicans being pro-choice. And uh, she gets crap from um, Mark Levin and conservatives, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that's a growing group within the Republicans. Maybe it starts with women. I don't know how many men are that way, but the Republican party really needs to be pro-choice on uh, reproductive rights, in my view.
0: Great. Uh, Chris, you want to chime in here? Uh, yeah, I just got off a Twitter space. Uh, we were
5: discussing my uh, one of my favorite discussion topics. Uh, I got to know, uh, what do you all think about Javier Mille?
0: The Argentine uh, libertarian candidate for president, kind of uh, out there with some of his views like many libertarians. Well, Chris, I, I have to confess I don't know much about him, but I
1: am intrigued by the idea, I, I almost can't believe it, but tell me otherwise, that Argentina has a chance of going libertarian. What I do know about Argentina is they did go through a really good stretch of having a currency board and Cavillo and others, at, and and Steve Hankey was down there advising them to put the economy back on sound footing, you know, in the 90s, but then they blew it, right? They, they gave it all up in, I think it was 2002 or so, they wrecked the currency. They went back to their old methods. So uh, I've been. This has been on my periphery, Chris, to look at it because I'm always looking for success stories. But I think in this case, we. W- I want to hear from you. What do you think?
5: Well, I've I've done I've recorded 13 shows talking to people about him. Uh, Americans who live down there. A very, one guy who said he became a libertarian because of melee. Uh Wow, and and they all say that he's ma- he's he's actually making a moral case for capitalism.
1: No kidding, uh, it,
5: wow. it really seems to be phenomenal. Uh, he okay. seems very rough. I don't know if he's. I, I don't hear. him. He seems very Rothbardian. Uh, you know, he's got a dog named Murray, and uh, it, oh, it sounds really pos- positive. I, I do know. I, I've I've also heard that Antonella is not a big fan of Mile. Uh I know, you know she might you, be Antonella Marty.
1: Yeah, I know. I, oh, Antonella's great. She's, she's, yeah. she's on our team. Do you know why she says that?
5: Uh, I'm not real. I'm not really sure. Just, uh, I'm here, you know, can, he's not very, he's not very big on abortion. Uh, Jag yeah. hablas espanol, right? Jag? Si, yo
4: Guatemala. <laughs> Just gave yeah. two speeches at the UFM. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I, I've been back and forth with her on this a bit. I I think uh, she's pointed out that he's um, been critical of Ayn Rand. The abortion oh. issue is a big one. Um, yeah. But I, I think if I am reading between the lines, what I get is that there are just a lot better alternatives. There are uh, maybe less high profile or less. Bomb- bomb- uh, reformer, reform candidates in Argentina that she prefers. But I would say that um, overall, I, th- I think it's positive because if nothing else, um, he is uh, getting more people interested in um, Austrian economics and maybe they'll check stuff out. I, mean, I wish, however, that he at least understood even if he, for whatever reason, doesn't personally like Ayn Rand um yeah that that, her her kind of strategic value as uh a recruiter and and a a very good entry point um with with the art and with the novels and so it's i i say you know big big tent uh and there is something to be said for these kind of um really something to be said both positively and negatively for these really. very fiery personalities, because they do break through the noise. Um, but they they also do, you know, damage along the way. And yeah. you know, there's one one thing that i am talking to the people down here in Guatemala, and the students, and one refrain that I hear is that um, the socialists do a very good job at manipulating emotions. And You know, they, of course, don't want as principled libertarians and objectivists, they don't want to engage in that. But at the same time, they see that they're at a loss. And so they're looking at uh, something, somebody like a Millay and saying, well, at least he's kind of playing against the left using some of their, um, their same oratory um, and communication tactics. So you should have her on your show to talk about it. You should have Antonella on for her arguments.
5: Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I did send her an email. I did find her email address and I sent her an email. I've had I've had Eduardo Marti on. I don't know if
4: they're related, but... No, not related. Yeah. Not related. What was his opinion?
5: Uh, he, he, he thinks he's pretty good. Yeah, I've had some quite a few. Uh, yeah, everybody I've had on has been a Spanish speaker, so that's one requirement. Uh, it's you know, not necessarily from there, but uh, I've talked to people who know him, people who work on his staff. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I. It, it seems like it's a. You know, he 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 says, for example, that you know, right, you know, these aren't. You know, you don't have a right to things, and I. I think he's a pretty philosophically consistent campaign. I. Uh, you know,
0: it's.
5: Uh, he's he calls the pope a communist, which is which is true, unfortunately. You know.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: that were the does work in Argentina a lot better than it works in uh, Brazil and elsewhere. Chris, I'm really glad to hear your take on this. The Atlas Society, um, Jag mentioned Big Tent. We are uh, really, uh, we're all, I don't want to speak for TAS, but from my own standpoint, I am uh, looking for, eager to see, pleased to see politicians and serious public policy people either citing Ayn Rand, or citing her arguments, um, because that's a good trend. Uh, objectivists are very philosophical. That's a good thing. But they often will say, uh, we're not going to get involved in politics, uh, because it's too early. They'll say, it's too early. You know, It'll take a century for these ideas. I've never believed that. I thought, if we can somehow find um, political leaders and others who at least come in our direction, even though they're not perfect. And I thought Ronald Reagan was that way. I thought Margaret Thatcher was that way. And you would be surprised if you know the history. There was a long history of objectivist intellectuals trashing those two. I mean, I don't think Ayn Rand said one nice thing about Margaret Thatcher. That's hard to believe, actually, because she, Margaret Thatcher was in office for three years, and Ayn Rand certainly should have said something nice about her in the direction she started privatizing everything in Britain. And and her and Leonard Peikoff and others hated Ronald Reagan. It never made any sense to me whatsoever. We knew that Reagan wasn't perfect. We knew that Reagan was partly religious. But the, we have to look in terms of are they coming in our direction? So it's a directionalist, what I, my colleague at, at Duke, Mike Mugger, calls directionalist uh, argument versus destination You cannot reject these candidates and these proposals because their destination is not identical to ours. You have to be happy that they're citing our heroes, Mises, Rand, Hazlitt, others. Ted Cruz has done that. Ronald Reagan did that. Ronald Reagan said very nice things about Ayn Rand. People don't know that. So I like this kind of thing. They're always on my radar. Any politician that uh, is uh, uh, is willing to um, cite albeit partially, our principles, is to me a leading indicator of really good things. We are going to win in the end. I'm 65, and I hope I see it before I die, but I know it's going to happen within the next 50 years. The leftist, altruist, socialist argument is disgusting, obscene, and impractical, and everybody knows that. And the, and the only issue is whether we will stand up and say capitalism is the most wonderful moral uh amazing habitat for humanity and uh, no one can beat us if we're consistently arguing about it so thanks chris for I, i'm going to pay more attention to him when is the election in argentina is it coming up or what, is, what are the dates
5: uh the 22nd of october uh he's got to get 45 to win so okay it's uh, kind of a convoluted system but they're, they're talking pretty good uh, that that space had Jeff Tucker on, so that well, I, I was I'm finally glad to hear what Jeff had to say about him. But yep. I, I generally you I, you got to you got to look at I, I don't know if Jeff knows Spanish, and for something like this, you got to you got to look to people who at least know Spanish because yep. you don't know what's going on there if you don't you you can't really know what's going on there if you don't if you don't know Spanish.
1: Yeah, well, thankfully, yep. thankfully, our CEO and and Antonella and others do. The Atlas, Society, the Atlas Society has a unique real amazing extension into South America that I I love. I think Europe is kind of lost, but not South America. South America has pockets of loving capitalism that are completely untapped. It's a great And Jennifer, you're uh, Jennifer uh, Jag, you're in Guatemala now a couple of days. How did it go? How did their speech go?
4: um well as usual as everybody at at the atlas society knows i'm always fighting off a little bit more than i could do and so i decided i would deliver my remarks in spanish um but i was very very impressed so i I gave a speech uh devolver capital al capitalismo putting the capital back in capitalism wow uh, arguing that um I was really arguing in favor of the term capitalism yeah, as opposed to the free market as a hook in order to make the point that production comes before um, transactions yeah, and that making kind of a roundabout point about profits coming before transactions. Yes, they come after transactions as well, but just, I think even when I go to these tech conferences and I hear the sort of the left wing, tenor of all of these people that are looking for capital um to be yeah. invested in the startups i'm like well okay let's if we do that 25 percent uh wealth tax on mm. billionaires so mm. in other words that's going to be spent on you know expanding bureaucracy rather than going into the next generation of, of technology startups and biomedical biomedical uh, startups so um, and then I just talked about virtue coming before profits and so that was really well, well received and then I just talked about um, objectivism in general, but I was very impressed with the, with the quality of the students down here. And, um, and then just generally impressed by Guatemala City this is the second time i've been here in three years um, and just how hardworking and how uh how much construction there is going on here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but you know again at the same time they just elected a socialist left-wing uh new leader although there seems to again we were talking before about uh fraud and that it does occur, occur and it has occurred all over the world for um for you know as long as democracy has been around and so there there is some doubt about whether or not election was um, actually fair and square, but um, but yeah, very, very good stuff. Very promising, uh, even young objectivist English speaking professors down here. So I well, really think yeah, I,
1: I, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Atlas, you down there speaking to them, such a great voice from, from America, from the gringos. Uh, <laughs> uh, join us, you know, and, you know, Jag, let me ask you something, Jag. I, um, I always hear about people, conservatives complaining about immigrants, uh, pouring over the borders and I, I really do want the borders managed. I don't want them closed. I want them, you know, managed in the Ellis Island sense, but I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, there's very little focus on why people are fleeing. We, we know they're coming here which I think is a vote of confidence in America. But no one asks why, why and where are they fleeing from and what's wrong with those systems. And Guatemala is one of them, right? The people are coming from Guatemala, like through Mexico to us. So, And you just said they voted for socialists. So it's, so, it's a paradox, isn't it? They vote for socialists and, and, then, they, the, and then the politicians
4: are voting with their feet.
1: And then the, yes and then the subsequent vote is we're out of here. And and that apparently that's true of Venezuela as well the New York the New York mayor or someone admitted that half of the 84,000 that have ended up in New York City are Venezuelans. And I thought to myself I think a
4: lot of I think a lot of them are Venezuelans. I think fewer I think there are some Guatemalans probably yep. more Mexicans um yep. but yep. you know as as I spoke about all of these hopeful signs of development and you know the, the work ethic down here but there mm-hmm. are a, a lot of um people begging on the streets and a lot mm. of the people begging on the streets are wearing little uh venezuelan flags mm. so there are there are venezuelans mm. here that are completely um wow you know destitute wow. and desperate yeah. and yeah. so i you know i think that things that the, there is growth i mean that the the tax the taxes down here are really actually not bad um, they've got a sales tax of like I don't know 15 percent or something like that and there is uh, what, basically what I understand is a flat tax of either 10 yep. percent yep. or it's 30 percent with deductions so people make yep. their own decisions about what is better for them yep. um, so, you know, and and I can see there's a lot of growing growing wealth down here, but there it's not it's not growing fast enough. So that's that's the, the 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 issue is that there there is a lot of opportunity um but you know, speaking of that socialist government, one thing that professors at UFM were telling me that they are so disgusted by, not only is there this new left-wing government or left-wing at least elected uh party uh, in Guatemala, but that the State Department is pushing for that and is Mm. resisting, um, the Guatemalan's efforts to talk about or look at whether or not there seriously was fraud. So, I mean, this is what they're, they're doing. (laughs) They are number one, promoting the Biden administration, number one, promoting policies down here that have wrecked other countries down here. So They're contributing to the supply of illegal yep. immigration, yep. anarchy right. at the border. Yep. And then number three, they are all for, uh, you know, comprehensive, so called, basically um, allowing people to, to come and stay. They're not going to be deporting anybody. Uh, and they are all for bigger welfare. Yep. Um, programs in these cities which are which are you know i'm so sick of hearing eric adams talking about oh they're they're shipping uh people up here and it's all texas's fault texas is full okay if you're a venezuelan and you arrive in texas and you know it's just glutted with other uh you know illegal immigrants and Texas isn't going to hand out, you know, free this free that Texas isn't sanctuary city, of course, you're going to go to, uh, <laughs> to New York, or to, to, to Boston or to one of these other cities, you, you know, so maybe somebody gives them a, uh, a bus fare or whatever, but by and large, they're finding their way they know where to go, they know where the free stuff is. And so they are heading to New York, and you know, it's, it's uh, the guy who killed his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court as an, as an orphan i mean that's what right he's 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 caused the problem he put out yes, a big the, beacon a big magnet
1: so these cities for years jag these cities for years have said uh we're very moral because we're sanctuaries we're sanctuary cities we're going to take people who um are poor and destitute and in need. And then when they actually come to your sanctuary cities, they get very upset and they want to ship them, what, Mother's Vineyard, they want to ship them off to some military base. And these people are so hypocritical. They have no, I guess it's virtue signaling. And yeah, Greg Abbott from Texas sends them up to New York and all of a sudden New York gets upset and blames it on Texas, but, uh, let me ask you, Jag. Also, uh, remember when um, the vice president was put in charge of this, Kamala Harris, and she very interestingly said something like, "Okay, we really need to look at the roots of the migration." Okay, that's interesting. I'm interested in the roots and the you know fundamental causes and everything. But I was waiting for her to say something like, "So vicious socialist regimes <laughs> in in Venezuela." And Guatemala and AOC type and Bernie Sanders type, uh, you know, governments that they're of course she wouldn't say that, right? But she blamed it on American policy. I I don't get that. I don't know what what policy that's American would make people from. I suppose you know, in her
4: mind, that um, we really should be uh, taxing Americans much more. We really should be deficit spending much more. We should yeah. be shipping massive amounts yeah. of foreign aid right. to or- these countries <laughs> so that, and, and that, you know, so basically right. the, the, that's going to end up in the pockets of, of, of the government. Of course, and, uh, of course. And that's, so that's, that's what she's thinking. Yeah, that's exactly
1: what she's saying. If you said to Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala, um, there are governments down there that are so vicious and so inhumane and so disgusting, like Guatemala and Venezuela, that people are, fl- people are fleeing. They're fleeing yeah. and, they're, and they're coming to America, which apparently you guys think is sexist and racist and whatever, they're coming here. But isn't it the AOC Bernie Sanders policies that are <laughs> in these foreign countries that are making people, they are so obli- I Sometimes I wonder whether they're oblivious or they know and they say it anyway. And the second one is a little more evil. I mean, like they know and they don't care, and they say it anyway. But or, uh, but it sounds like you were you were at UFM. UFM has been there for many many years. It's kind of encouraging, isn't it, Jennifer? To to be with those people, it's kind of nice. You feel more emboldened that we're winning, maybe, maybe.
4: Yeah. Well, I you know it kind of goes back to something that Rob Tresinsky said at. Um, Our summer conference, which he said that from his perspective, having been in the objectivist movement for a really long time, that, um, you know, 20 years ago, at least, again, from his perspective, it was mostly a U.S. thing. And now we really see a lot of energy shifting around the world, um, Latin America, uh, Eastern Europe, India. um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm encouraged.
1: Yeah. And our own, uh, we know in the last six months or so, our own Stephen Hicks in Europe uh, discussing objectivism with Greg uh, Biddle, another great objectivist intellectual, discussing whether objectivism should be open or closed or not. I mean, that was in, if I get it, if I remember right, was that in Serbia? Uh, I mean, they're, right. uh, yeah, amazing, amazing parts of Europe that care about these ideas and, Care about promulgating them, and well, Scott. Yeah. I don't, yeah, go I don't ahead. want
4: this to become too like inside uh, baseball, so I'll. No, no, go ahead. In a moment, but I did just want to mention, David, that yes. you are such a tremendously beloved figure here, um, oh, and sure, that sure the objectivists that hmm. I met with um, had come to hmm. your summer conferences decades and decades ago. You also oh. came to. UFM, and they're very sophisticated about objectivism, and they are mm. quite uh, adamantly on the side of, uh, of open objectivism. So it was interesting.
1: Oh, wow. David, uh, David <laughs> give, give us some thoughts about when you were down there.
2: Well, I was down there uh, two years in a row, once in, in, in back it, uh, over a decade, a decade and a half ago. The last time, second time was in uh, 2007 when uh, it was it was the uh, 50th anniversary of Atlas Shrugged and UFM as well as other places, had put on a, um, you know, a celebration of the fact. I was invited to come wow. talk. Wow. And I did. And um, at that time, um, oh, the the... the the president of uh, UFM at the time—I'm blanking on his name—but he was just a wonderful, wonderful man, and he passed away before his time, not long after. But anyway, uh, he set up a number of meetings with for me. But the but the special thing for me was um, I gave my talk in the uh, business school. Yeah and afterwards there was an unveiling of a wonderful bar relief of uh, uh by walter peter of atlas holding the world up uh, wow. and we went up on the uh side and i believe it's still there jack correct me if i'm wrong but i believe it's still there wow of, uh, yeah
4: yes At- it is and, and i actually met with uh with the, the sculptor and he said oh his good husband.
2: I i wanted to ask yeah. you that yeah
4: yeah I've, you know, I I see that we've got JP um up on stage, and I know we just have like a minute left. Are you guys willing to take more one more question from JP? Yeah,
1: go ahead, JP. Yes. Thank you, David.
0: Yeah. JP, you there? Yeah, I am here. Yeah, I am here. I don't know if you can hear me now. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: can hear you, JP. Go ahead. Oh.
0: Well, no, I, I would just uh, say hi and let you get on with your day. I know that you guys are very busy usually, so so just big hi for you. Good. Well, we appreciate JP, that.
4: What, JP, what country are you in?
0: I am uh, Guatemalan. I am in Guatemala. Oh,
4: okay, I'm in Guatemala too at the moment.
0: Oh, awesome! Yeah, I I heard about uh, your your talks about I, on UFM because I get the I get the, well I get the notification from New Media. So how was that?
4: It was great. We'll include a write up in the newsletter, and next time I'm down here, we'll have to meet up.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do. Great. Well, uh, this has been uh, fantastic. It was great to see the uh, interplay with Richard and Jag. Hopefully, uh, you know, as we get into election season, we might see them uh, do more shows together. Uh, Coming up next week, Jag on Wednesday is going to be interviewing uh, Brendan O'Neill. Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Then um, again, there is a debate Wednesday night with the GOP and uh, Richard Salzman will be uh, here, will be talking uh, Thursday the 28th at 5 p.m. Eastern with our own Abby Barringer as well uh, about the uh, debate analysis. It should be good. I'm looking forward to it, especially after uh, Richard's uh, brief analysis earlier. But thanks everyone for joining us. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week.
1: Scott, thank
2: you. David, Jag, you were all great. Connie, Chris, JP, thanks so much.